Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Welcome to the Along Came a Writer Network. Opinions expressed in our shows do not necessarily reflect. Welcome to Publishing Lane with your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Write Integrity Press. This is Publishing Lane, and I'm Margie Lane Klubine with Write Integrity Press, and I'm here along with multi-published author and freelance editor, Faye Lamb. Hi, happy March, everyone. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. Every month we end up chatting about things in the publishing industry and we're on the other side of the desk. So authors not only get a chance to have handy tips about writing careers, but you also get those hints and insights directly from editors that are in the field. So if you have any questions about writing or publishing or changes in our industry, write to Faye and me. Um, you can find us at downpublishinglane at gmail.com. That's downpublishinglane. And remember, Lane is L-A-I-N-E. It's my middle name. It's my pen name, L-A-I-N-E downpublishinglane at gmail.com. And Faye, I already have a question that I was asked recently. In fact, last weekend, I was asked this question. Well, let me see if I can answer. <laughs> well, okie doke. Um, I was at an author event in Lampasas, Texas. Oh my gosh, I had so much fun there. But a few of the other authors were, and I were de- discussing storyboards and planning techniques. Um, a storyboard is kind of an old way of doing the planning, right? Yes, it is. It is. And I have to admit that when I consider a storyboard and I do mine, they aren't very elaborate. I use them when I need them. I kind of like to keep the creative process in my writing. So it's my storyboards are mainly on the computer. There's no cork board or whiteboard, no paper, anything. I create three by five index cards and then I work my scenes out by using and this name should come with a oh James Scott Bell's yeah. lock system. I say that oh. because because Mr. Bell is so good at explaining what we good. do. Yes, and in his plot and structure he talked about the lock system. And so uh-huh. on each of these five three by five cards I'll have an L O C K. And I'll put for each scene, not each chapter, each scene, who's the lead character, what they're doing that brings interest to the reader, and it has to be relevant relevant to the story, to the plot. Then O is for objective. What is that goal or the objective that the character, that lead character is trying to do in that scene that moves the book uh-huh. forward? If we have an objective, then we have to have a conflict. That's what the C stands for. So I find a conflict. What's going to keep that person, that lead character, from meeting that objective? And then my K is that kicker ending. Now, most Mm -hmm. people think a kicker ending has to be an explosion or a gunshot. But it just has to be something. It can be emotional. It could be something very subtle. But it has to make the reader turn the page. And that's what I do. That's basically my storyboard. You know, I always like the kickers, like you said, I always like to end it with a question or a hint at what's next to make them turn that page. Mm -hmm. Because that is a, 
you're right. It doesn't have to be an, expl- an explosion or a gunshot. Um, my very first, I actually did a storyboard, and I didn't know that's what it was called at the time, but I was a teacher, and so I was used to doing displays and stuff like that, and I did a science I got an old science board and lined it out and taped it to my wall and put um, colored tape in the form of kind of a mountain that was kind of skewed to the right. It was it was taller to the right than to the left. And then I used sticky notes all over it to put my story together on this mountain. And the mountain was the rising action. And then at the end of the mountain was just a little bitty short falling action for the end of the story. And that's how I ended up doing my very first storyboard. I don't do them that way anymore at all. Um, but I do, I do end up doing it. I know um, a lot of authors actually consider themselves I mean we talk about storyboards or organizing and and outlines and stuff like that and they just kind of glaze over my friend Patricia Pack Jack Carroll is like that Um, she is the queen of story spinning in her head and she is the books for show to show for it Um, but she calls herself a pantser and I, I was actually telling my daughter a few minutes ago what our topic was tonight, and I told her that, you know, we were talking about plotters as uh, as opposed to pantsers, and my daughter looked at me and kind of paused, and she went, Mom, what do you mean by pantser? And I said, okay, what do you mean by pantser? And she said, well, a pantser is a person that runs up to somebody and yanks their pants down, and I'm like, no! <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. In this case, a pantser is someone that writes by the seat of their pants, which is actually what you do most of the time. Isn't that right, Faye? I'm definitely a pantser. All my stories, I I think I've mentioned this a hundred times, all my stories are in my head. My characters are always there. Um, Most of them go from imagination to paper, and there's lots of revisions. But sometimes, though, if I Uh hit a snag, I'll revert to the lock system and, that I described earlier. And I, I did think about something today when, because I knew we were going to talk about this. And I remember one really strange storyboard that I did, and it was for Storms and Serenity. And that oh, little island that I write Storms about. Storms Serenity, yes. Yes. Well, it has a lot going on. And there's actually uh-huh. two storms hitting this little town. One is a Cat 3 hurricane, and the other is a little more powerful. It's a spiritual typhoon. So I knew what was going on with each of my characters. I'd actually known them for years and years. I knew they're building conflict. But I wanted to make that conflict into and give the readers this idea of this building storm. So I got this big, large, like, poster paper, and I started at the bottom with the little circles, and I went all the way up, and I drew a vortex. And then I wrote along the vortex where everything would happen so that I could keep track and make sure that, okay, this plot line here didn't go here, but I need it to go here so that it's not too far from when I last mentioned it. And that worked out really well. Uh, well, that it did work out. Way. It did work out. You know, okay, just in case we don't get to this at the end, Storms in Serenity is Faye's brand new release. Happy release day, Faye Lamb. I yes, am so it's, happy. It's, 40 years in the making. <laughs> yes, and it released today, and this story is epic. And I'm not going to tell you all about it until the end, but I do want to tell you, I we you know we usually do a pre-order special on our ebooks and they end 
generally they end the day of of release and sometimes there have been a couple of them that have kind of bled over onto the release day well today i kept it at the pre-release price so it is 40 percent off right now so if you happen to be listening and you're lucky enough to be listening live with us it is 40 percent off right now it's called storms and serenity it's on amazon you can get it for your kindle at 40 percent off right now and it will be 40 percent off for just a few hours after we're done tonight and then it's going to go up to its regular price but this story when i say epic i am not joking this is a saga it is so good it is so good and guess what else the best part is it's only the beginning of her serenity key series i cannot wait to read the next one i'm just saying that right now okay but let's get back to our (laughs) plotting because you don't plan uh you do plan but you plan in your head everybody plans a little bit but you plan it in your head and goodness knows i've seen your plots i know they're planned but i plan a (laughs) lot I don't just plan a little. I plan a whole lot, um, except for Storms and Serenity. I know that book's that book stirred around in your mind for four decades. Um, how do yes. you plan your other stories, like Delilah? I know you've been working on Delilah. Um, I develop most of Delilah again in my head, but more than usual, I have taken what's in my brain and I slapped it on index cards. The the fun thing about the cards for Delilah is that if I found out that I was running into trouble or that a scene needed to be moved somewhere, I could rearrange those index cards. Um, Delilah, I'm still learning some things about her. And when I'm writing, I'll go back, I'll see the cards and see if I've gotten anything um, that I veered off of the path. Or I can find out if I need to layer in things that maybe I missed at the beginning. And the cards help me do that. And they also help me escalate the conflict so if I it's it's usually if there's something I can either do a whole set of the lock system for a whole book or that system has gotten me out of big pinches a lot of times uh Uh, it's just Mm -hmm. a, a great way to do it well I end up I use Scrivener and Scrivener is actually a software program I know you use Scrivener also don't you Faye yes I do Yep, yep. It's a software program from Literature and Latte. Um, if you, it, listeners, if you Google Scrivener, it's S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R. If you Google Scrivener, you're going to find the sites where you can purchase that software. It's not very expensive, and it is a masterpiece of organizing, not just writing. I have written scripts on Scrivener. I I keep um, my goal setting and business plans and my career plans and my year in review I keep all of that on Scrivener it's such a good organizing even finances you can keep finances on Scrivener it's such a good organizing uh, program and so um, I, after I let my story spin for a while I end up opening a new Scrivener file and I write everything I know about that story into a document in the file and sometimes I only have a scene to start with then the, the story has to go back in the evidence to you a bit but when I have the full plot set up, then I start really opening the benefits of the program. And that's when I get into what I'm calling, what our topic is today. Our topic today is kind of the skeleton of the story. And for me, the skeleton of the story is usually, it starts out as eight sections. So when I start using my Scrivener, I open up eight files and I start 
kind of planning what to put in each of the files. And so what ends up coming out, I usually don't stick with eight. I usually go up to nine, between nine and 13, um, depending on how long my book is. I don't know. If I were if I were, had written Storms and Serenity, it probably would have been about 20 because that, like I said, it is epic story. Um, but but when it comes to my stories from my novellas, it's closer to eight uh, or nine files. And for my full-length novels, it's closer to 13 or 14. I think th 13 is the most I've ever had. Um, but those sections become the skeleton of my story. And the sections themselves are always kind of the same. And so that's what we want to talk about today. We're talking about the schedule of the skeleton of the story, and we're actually we're actually, when I first started this, I was going to talk about all of them, but uh, y'all can't see it, but our plan is almost 13 pages long, and so there's no way I'm going to be able to talk about all the different sections. In fact, today we're only going to be talking about one section, the very first section, but I got to tell you, this is a crucial section, and so it's really important to get this section right. Um, sometimes um, it, it, it sounds a little formulaic, but the sections grow. They actually move depending on the story itself, like I was saying. But the very first section is always the same. And it's an introduction. Now, when I say an introduction, it's not just a how do you do. You're not just saying this is my main character and this is my hero and this is my heroine. This introduction is actually, like I said, crucial. So the design in this section, it depends a lot on the genre of the book. Um, the best way to start out is to have some kind of an incident that stirs up the main character into action. Um, the main character is just like everyday life. The main character is, is living their life, and you need to have something happen to that main character that stirs them into some kind of action that will lead to the initiation of the plot. The plot is, and I'll say it again in a little bit, the plot is the car. The plot is the vehicle that is driving the story, but the character is the driver, and they can't work. Um, each they can't work by themselves. They can't work away from each other. They have to work together, and so that that something has to happen that's going to stir that character into action. If you're writing romance, this can be something funny or something heartwarming that gives them yeah. the main character a question a reason to question where he or she is. Um, if you're writing a cozy mystery, it's usually going to have a, a body. You're usually going to find a body in this first section. If you're writing a suspense or an action adventure, boy, this incident has to amp up the action immediately. We're going to look at a few beginnings today. And so we're actually going to be reading, Faye and I are going to actually be reading from some of our different books to show you what we mean by the incident, this initial incident that um, that begins everything, that starts every, it, it's the ignition to your story. Oh, there we go, another car car idea. It's the ignition to your story. So, Faye, yes. let's start with Frozen uh -huh. Notes. That's the suspense that you just finished, that you just did, I guess it, it um, released back in October of last year. And yes. so let's start, or November, let's start with that one. It starts out with a bang. It sure does. Here, I'll start it out. A hush fell over the small crowd loitering outside Lyric Carter's house as paramedics placed the bodies of the two men, both encased in body bags, onto separate gurneys and wheeled them to the waiting ambulances. 
The sheriff's deputy had completed the gun residue test and Lyric backed away from the woman. She fell hard into the chair at her kitchen table near the open front door and stared at her still bloody hand, not knowing what to do next. The winter's cold air gusted into the home, but the chill had set in the moment her husband, Braden, had returned to the house, brandishing his handgun. Lyric fought to keep her tears at bay while investigators plundered now through her house looking for shell casings, additional bullet holes, and other evidence. But a murder-suicide was pretty cut and dry. The investigators wouldn't search for much else. Her body tilted with her sobs, if, if lifted with her sobs. If Braden had only looked at the documents he curried from Raleigh, he and Matthew Roberts would still be alive. He'd left them unopened on their table before a phone call sent him out. Before he returned, Lyric opened and then hid the evidence where no one would find it, prepared to face Braden's wrath would it come to that. And that's uh, this the opening. Is, yeah, this is just huge. There are all kinds of questions in this, but I was jarred when I first, I mean, the very first sentence, the bodies of two men, both encased in body bags. And then with her looking down at her still bloody hands, I'm like, oh my gosh, what has happened to this woman? This is no cozy mystery. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, this, it's not. This is no cozy mystery, not at all. Um, I have a romantic suspense counterpoint, and it starts out with excitement also, um, not quite as much the pistol, the starter pistol as Faze is, um, but it has, it starts out actually as a prologue, and I'm going to try and read it. Mine's more, has more um, conversation and dialogue in it, and so it's a little harder just to read it, but um, it'll give you an idea. So let me see how I do. A boy, Sevilla clapped his hands. The smack echoed against the bare adobe dome. He will be a fine boy. He beat his boot heels on the marble floor. His black beard bounced against his white tunic. Ha! Go upstairs, wife. Lie down. Rest. I have plans for the afternoon. Olita took a step backwards, putting the leather sofa between them, her large eyes wary, but her middle already showing evidence of his child. You will do as I say. He snapped in her direction and put his back to her. His child would be the heir to his business, his kingdom. He must be strong and healthy. Go now and take care of my son. He is my son, too. The woman's voice cracked. She pressed her back against the wall. She tested his good humor. His eyes hardened as he shot her a glare. His hands fisted at his side, prepared to take action on her insolence. But this was supposed to be a joyful time. He relaxed his muscle and, and applied a measured smile under his black whiskers. Be careful, Olita. I cannot guarantee that my gratitude will last too far beyond my son's birth. She stiffened. Good. She should be scared. She'd she seen enough to know that her fortunate circumstances, to know of her fortunate circumstances and to be thankful for them. Sidestepping out of his study, she scurried up the stairs, her heels clicking like the little mouse she was, popping in a hollow manner. The sounds grew louder. She gasped as glass broke echoing in the entrance of his via of his villa i'm sorry olita he stepped toward the great hall senor sevilla two men from his security security arrived good he needed answers go and check on olita make sure that my son is all right captain ortega gestured to the other men we must get you to safety another drill these are getting tiresome they are prepare they prepare your security team to keep you safe, sir. Ortega ushered him through the thick hallway 
to his helicopter hangar. The other man had seen to Olita. Make sure my wife comes. The captain touched his earpiece and issued the order. Sevilla climbed aboard the revving bird and looked back. Ortega grew pale. We must go, he climbed aboard. Not until Olita arrives, Sevilla said. She is carrying my son, my heir. His humor had returned. A young prince would carry on his legacy. The angled roof sections lifted and began to open up. Stop, I will not leave without her. We have to go, senor. Ortega strapped the belt around Sevilla and shouted at the pilot. Sevilla kicked at the man. I will have your head. He willed him to fall out the gaping side of the transport. No such luck. Ortega pulled the sliding door closed as they cleared the roof. Pings hit the heavy metal siding. Sevilla glanced at Ortega, his captain. What is that? Is something wrong with the rotor? The copter lurched forward and accelerated. Gunfire, senor. You idiot! You left Olita back there. I'm sorry, sir. Fernandez reported that she was dead when he reached her. Shot on the stairs. No. Bile gathered in his mouth. She carried my son, the coming leader of the Montez cartel. There is no more Montez cartel, sir, Ortega shouted over the pounding of the blades. There's only you and me and our pilot. What are you saying? What about his soldiers, his lawyer followers, the faithful ones who would die before injury befell him? The cartel lives, he said. All of your property is under siege except for the bunker near Asmarandu. Ortega wiped the sweat from his eyes with the back of his hand. A few men there, and the Federales know nothing about the compound. Asmarandu. Sevilla growled the village name. His home. The missionary? His captain smirked. He did all of this. His noble report in the face of fear, Ortega grimaced. That man would pay. He has no idea what fear looks like. I will kill him myself, senor, said his captain. No, Sevilla tapped his fingertips together. I want him to worry, and then I want him to see everything he loves destroyed as he has destroyed everything that is mine. His captain clucked his, th his tongue. Most of what he loves is in America. Then I will go to America, Sevilla spat out the hated word. But this, by the time I finish with Raymond Johnson, he will understand true terror. Now, that's that's my romantic suspense, and it definitely starts out differently than a romance would. Um, and and I have to tell you, it's a little harder because there's so much of the of the um, the talking and the dialogue. It's easier when you actually read mm -hmm. it than it is to actually hear it. Um, but it starts out with the same kind of you're finding out instead of from the hero or the heroine, you're finding out what the conflict is and what the plot is from the bad guy himself. Um, and and don't you, worry. You know it's going to come. <laughs> yes. uh -huh. You know it's going to come. The thing about this story is there's also a pretty thick mystery to it. In fact, most of the readers mm -hmm. don't know what's happening until the very end. Um, and, and Sevilla is quite the character. He's, He's kind of interesting, but a romance is going to start a very out good Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I like it. Um, but a romance will start out entirely differently, don't you think, so, Faye? I think so. Yes. You need to. Sometimes you might have to start off setting the scene, like in my novel Hope, 
she's, uh-huh. she's very sick. And we find out in the opening scene that she's very sick. And when, when she, when it starts, we kind of get the idea, uh-oh, we know what's going to happen to this girl. But we don't know at that time who her hero is going to be. So the first scene setting up where she's um, going for testing and stuff, let's just like your, like your um, chapter did in your romantic suspense or your scene did, it lets the uh-huh. reader know something, something this way comes. <laughs> yes, yes. So, and then... And then hope that's the first the first scene, and then the second scene you meet the hero and you go, oh wow, there's conflict here. And yes. I can share that if you want me to. Yes, I do. Okay, do. This is go ahead a, and share that second scene. And I tend to kind of use a lot of deep point of view. And Daniel is the hero; he's there alone, so he's not going to be talking to anybody because he's definitely not going to talk to Hope, who's the heroine. But here we go. Uh-huh. Daniel, never tired of hearing Miss Ann's exploits. The way the hospital staff acted whenever she came around could make most anyone a believer. But hearing her name on Hope Astor's beautiful lips wasn't what he expected. According to hospital gossip, Miss Ann apparently had a direct line to, to God, knowing who needed prayer and showing up right when they needed it. He'd wanted to get away without being seen, but the file he'd had slipped from his clumsy grasp. Hope had turned those soft blue eyes in his direction, and his name had escaped her lips. Even after all that had happened between them, his traitorous heart sided against him. If he'd allowed it to have its desire, he'd have run to her, taken her into his arms, and would have done his best to assure her that she'd be okay. Instead, he stuffed the patient's file back together, tucked it to his side, and walked past the two women as he fought to keep his eyes from portraying him as well. Oh, Hope wow. has exited her test. Danny's in the hallway. She sees him, and he's he, you can tell he's really broken here. And there's yes. something, you get an idea. There's something standing between them, but you don't. You're, you're telling, like you said, it's the skeleton of the story. So uh-huh. many people, so many authors try to pack everything, everything they know into the first chapter. Oh. Right, no, and it can't. Right, right, and this is, and the other thing is, this is the skeleton of the story, in that it's just the, it's just the, the, um, the the framework, and then you're layering things on top. But you're right about the first scene. You can't tell everything in the first scene. To be honest, when I first started writing, um, the critique gals that are very experienced, um, uh some of my critique friends, um, Lynn Gentry, who is uh, multi-published, and um, Patricia Pack, Jack Carroll, and uh, Jack mm-hmm. Castle, all of them are multi-published, and Lena Nelson Dooley, um, and all of them said the same thing. Most of the time, you're going to throw away that first chapter, because all the first chapter is when you're writing, especially as a beginning writer, when you're writing the majority of the first chapter, just all the things that you want to know and that you know about about the mm-hmm. story, and so it's just it, you you literally are going to crack it up like uh, like some kind of sugar candy and sprinkle it all over the rest of the story because you don't want that big huge info dump at the beginning. You just have to have hints at different things. But I have to tell you, Hope is such an amazing story, Faye. I love listening Thank to you. you read that again. Uh, it brings back the ah. 
oh, I love that story. And that conflict churning in Daniel in that early scene just scratches the surface of his deep feelings. Uh, my romance, I, my Ain't Misbehaving that just came out last month, or I guess in January, it's more of a romantic comedy. So it starts out a little more lighthearted, but it still has hints of that internal conflict. And I tried real hard to cut this down, and it just wouldn't cut. Uh, you, you have to hear all the different parts of it to know what's going on inside the character. And my character is really different. She is, I've never written a character like her before. She is aimless at the beginning of the story. She's just kind of empty. Um, so this is the, this is chapter she's one. She's very for, mem memorable. Uh, at the end, she's she gets and, that way. And, uh, yeah, but I, I just remember her for all her faux pas and all of that. She's a, she's a <laughs> yeah. great character. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, this is Anna Lee, and this is an Ain't Misbehaving. This is chapter one. Her future wasn't the only thing at stake. Annalie Chambers slipped into the bare consultation room with her mother, father, and attorney. Reporters filled the hallway shouting questions as the door closed. She tugged at a stray blonde curl the, early, uh, the August breeze had pulled from her hair clip and sank into the wooden chair. If only invisibility were possible, a desire initiated when they had arrived at the Frank Crowley court building and cameras had started flashing. Leaning against the high back of the seat, she stared at the ceiling fan, making a slow rotation. For a solid minute, she matched her breathing to the fan's rhythm. The judge has to toss away this whole fabrication. Her mother paced the same path as the shadows from the circling blades. Can't she identify the real victim in this case? Anna Lee bristled at the insinuation. Mr. Madison was the victim, Mom. He and his family are the ones impacted by the impact or by the accident. Accident. Annalee hadn't even realized she'd hit anyone. Her father lifted a slat from the blinds hanging over the only window in the room and said, it's clear the district attorney is only trying to hurt my campaign. The sunlight came, coming in made him squint. He's, he's been a fan of Mayor Ellis since the beginning. Now, since I'm a real threat, he's doing everything he can to make me look bad and Anna Lee had helped in the destruction of her father's mayoral campaign when she traveled to Club Row to pick up her tipsy friend. Mr. Walbright, the attorney, bent his balding head over his briefcase. We don't have too much time to plan the defense. He unearthed a stack of legal documents and came up for air. She caught her father's disgusted glance. Pull, Walbright. He probably hoped that his representing Anna Lee would pave the way for him to work at her father's firm, but his lack of organization and planning for the case destroyed that dream in its infancy. The man thumbed through the st stack until his forehead relaxed, and he pulled a page from the chaos. As I understand the events of the night, the officers didn't actually see you driving the car. Is that correct, Miss Chambers? Yes, but what does that matter? She shrugged. That is the whole point. Can't you see... Mother took another lap around the room. There are no witnesses. Not even Mr. Madison saw your face because you had something white covering it. Giselle's napkin. She eyed her Versace bag, tempted to pull out her sketch pad and let her conversation fade from her mind. Miss, her mother halted. Whatever. If no one can place you in front of the bar, there is no case. I'm going to skip a little bit because this kind of gets it kind of goes into um, quite a bit, quite a bit of conversation and di dialogue, and it gets confusing. So.
So I'm going to go into, as they go into, um, her, her sister comes into the room and they talk some more, but as they go into the case, um, the judge starts talking. Uh, before they go in, they're talking about the fact that they don't have any case, and so the man who's the victim is actually going to get nothing, even though he worked two jobs and supported his family. So they walk in, and, and Annalie's very upset about it, um, about the fact that her parents really don't care much about this man. The slender judge climbed to her place as everyone stood. She took her seat in a cascade of robes. In this heat, no wonder the woman's gray-brown bangs stuck to her forehead. Be seated, the judge said, and she proceeded to read the formal case title and all of the details of the accusation. Defendant, please rise, she said. Annalie rose, every eye watching like an audience at an open-heart surgery. She lowered her chin but glanced up at the judge. The robed woman gave her a lingering perusal. Straighten up, her mother's whisper brought reality to the situation. Annalie relaxed her shoulders and lifted her face. The judge declared from a notepad, you stand accused of the crime of leaving the scene of an accident involving injuries, a class A misdemeanor carrying up to one year in county jail, a fine not to exceed $5,000, and restitution to the victim in this case. Um, the judge flipped the page in her file and continued in a robotic tone. A Mr. Robert Madison. She hadn't considered the possibility of jail time. The thought chilled her. Maybe Walbright's ideas were the best of all, after all, so she could avoid this altogether. How do you plead, the judge said. Annalie took a look at her attorney. Why didn't he say anything? Just say not guilty, he whispered. What? She was the one that was going to have to talk in front of a room full of people? Wait. She was the one that was going to declare her plea. A low rumble resonated over the room. The judge tapped her pen against a woodblock. Quiet, please. She arched her unibrow in Annalie's direction. Miss Chambers, the jerk of her head made her wispy bouffant teeter. Guilty. Annalie's answer came out in a conversational tone, as though she commented on the weather. The room erupted with urgent voices, and Annalie clapped her jaw tight. Her announcement would have repercussions of storm-like proportions. So you could tell in this first section, and I didn't want to read all of it because it really does get a little tedious. Um, I don't mean tedious because it doesn't get tedious. It just gets no, long, especially when I'm, I'm about to say, especially when I'm reading it aloud is what I'm thinking. I, I don't know. I like listening to audible books, but um, when there when there's a lot of uh, conversation, I haven't written in the he said she says in here, and so sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out who's talking. It's easy to figure it out when you're reading. It's not easy to figure it out when you're listening to it. Um, but you can see the the main conflict in the story. You can see the setup um, in this, mm -hmm. and that the and you can also tell a little bit about Annalie. She is. Um, almost vapid at the beginning of the story she's just she's a she's a, a a vacuum there's nothing inside she doesn't have any strong goals she doesn't have any uh she doesn't have any hardly any personality to be honest but she really doesn't like the fact that her parents and her and her attorney and even her sister when her sister comes in they don't seem to care about this man 
who has a broken hip from this car accident and who works two jobs and is now not able to work his jobs, they just want to get out from all of this. And they don't want to have to but give him actually, anything. actually, what you put into her in that scene was you see that she's kind of been overshadowed. I, I kind of picked this up because she over she's overshadowed by her parents, even her sister, so that she doesn't really have to make any decisions. But what we see in Annalie from the very beginning is that she has a good heart. She yeah. has morals yeah, she and really ethics. Does. And she's, she's even willing to take the blame for a, a friend that she had to pick up. She just and we and that story goes along and you learn more and more and more about this girl and if she had been able to shine what life would have been like and she she's really a shining star. I love that story. I really I, I, do. I thank you. I, I really you know, I hadn't planned on this, Faye, but I ended up the next the next series or the next story in this series it was gonna be um a wedding planner. And I've already written the part, the first part of that story um, called "Putting on the Ritz," and uh-huh. instead I've set that story besi- aside because I really, at the end of the story, you know, Giselle is um, the friend, the tipsy friend that Annalie goes to help, and she's a real mm-hmm. jerk through this story. She's a and <laughs> I thought, you know what? She is. She's a stinker. But she needs a story, and so I, I kind of took a page from your from your book with your ties that bind series, because I'm now writing uh-huh. Giselle's story, and so um, oh, I I really I, and I loved Annalise so much. She has to come back in Giselle's story. I didn't want to lose her, but you know the first oh, section. Yeah, the first section, though, not only introduces the main characters, I mean, the main characters are really important, but it sets up a conflict in the story and in Ain't Misbehaving. You can see there's a conflict already between Annalie and her mother. Uh, They are not on Mm -hmm. the same wavelength. I mean, they're not even on the same planet. They are so far apart. In Counterpoint, that disastrous event set up the determination of the antagonist to make uh, my hero's life as miserable as he possibly can. In Frozen Note, mm-hmm. Faye, Faye, your your first scene initiated, oh my gosh, 101 questions that hint at all kinds of conflicts. And I mean, they're just little bitty questions, like the fact that, that um, uh, lyrics, uh, hands were covered in in blood, and that, and then the fact that she hid those documents. I mean, they're just they just hint at all these different conflicts. The same is really true in Hope, also. Mm-hmm. We when you that's what you do. You um, you just try to to. I can't kind of think about it. You you toss your um reel like you're you're fishing, and you throw your your line out. And then you start uh-huh. reeling in, and your readers, you're just reeling your readers in because the more you leave out, but you can't make them think that the that the characters are doing it purposely. It just has to unfold that way. It makes them turn the page. So you're reeling your readers in through the page, and that's what makes an enjoyable read. Just don't throw everything yeah. out there. Get your skeleton there. Know where you're going to need to put these places, and that's and you build upon your skeleton. Right. So, so hope is a really good example. The novel really needs a setup, even in a romance. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. As as noted, Hope starts out with um, you start out with her in the scene that brings the true conflict to light. Hope is going to find out she's sick. She's very sick. Danny Duvall has been very important to Hope. They've known each other all their life, but there's like this 100-foot steel wall standing between them. And when we Uh meet Daniel in the second scene, as I read, the readers can see that he he has concern for her, but his concern is considered by him a traitorous heart. And that sets up the conflict for the hero and hero, and it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And yeah. I believe that the very key that the author is, that authors realize that not everything, I'm going to say it again, not everything yeah. needs to be known in that first chapter. Beginning you know, writers, that's the biggest mistake they make. Right, right. And it's like I said before, literally, that first chapter, you're going to end up tossing it and sprinkling bits and pieces of it all through your story. Because if if you're a beginning writer, now that's not for everybody, but chances are if you're a beginning writer and this is your first novel, your first manuscript, and you haven't done a lot of critiquing yet, chances are that first chapter is not one that you're going to want to use. You're going to want it to come in in a different way. Your introduction is not a, a an information dump. Your introduction is hints and sprinkles and little pieces of conflict, little little um, nuances that let you believe in conflict. Um, in, ain't Beha- in Ain't Misbehaving, I didn't introduce the hero in my very first scene, but the conflict of the main character in her plea sets up the issue clearly. Um, but it, it, uh, the, it doesn't introduce both characters. This introduction is not just one scene. The introduction can mm-hmm. actually last through several scenes. And so my, main, my uh, hero is actually uh, introduced in the second scene. And so I'm going to read a little bit more about that. There's a lot that's revealed about Anna Lee as we talked about, but um but CJ, he has even more that's revealed in him in his scene, his first scene. So I'm going to read a little bit of that. And again, I'm going to kind of skip through a bit so that you guys won't have to be it's it skip through some of the stuff that is um conversational. C.J. Whalen approached the expansive doors of the Preston Park Country Club. Hand-carved wood, wrought iron handles, and lead crystal inserts proclaimed their value in a dignified tone. He jerked one of them open and passed through the portal from normal life to luxury. May I help you? The host's tuxedo seemed too formal for such an early hour and way too hot for the Texas heat wave going on outside. I'm here to see Scott Whalen. His dad had insisted he, intend, he attend the Interseed Foundation's board meeting. Everything in CJ wanted to rebel, or at least find, find a plausible excuse for not coming. But when he'd blown off last month's meeting, they'd cut some of the funding for the program he directed. This time, he'd spent almost an hour talking to God about the situation before he arrived. Dad didn't understand the importance of the after-school care program. Or maybe he only cared about getting his own way. The man behind the concierge counter dipped his glance toward CJ's sneakers and back up across his blue jeans and T-shirt. I beg your pardon. Mr. Whalen is in the formal dining room, he emphasized formal. What was his problem? CJ wore a button-down shirt over his tee. 
in this August blast, that took effort and dedication. And, he said, lifting his chin and nailed the host with steady eyes, the man didn't meet the challenge. Instead, he dug through a drawer on his left. The Preston Park Country Club has certain standards for our formal areas. He pulled a folded navy tie from the drawer. This should satisfy the membership. Next time his dad forced, to, forced him to come here, CJ would not bother covering his Casting Crowns t-shirt at all. He ground his molars together and snatched the silk dog collar. Knotting it around his neck, he left it loose. The maitre d' attempted to tighten it, but CJ swatted his hands away. I can see myself in. No, no, no! The man leaped to bar his way. I must see your identification, sir. Mr. Whalen has given me a list of his guests, and I must check off your name. Of course. We mustn't color outside the lines, must we? CJ whipped out his driver's license and dropped it on the host station. There. We good now? Uh, Mr. Whalen, the host's eyes widened. I'm so sorry, sir. I had no idea. So I'm not on dear daddy's list? CJ collected his card and stuffed his wallet into his back po pocket. Uh, no need to be on his guest list as Mr. Whalen's son, that is, your father's son. I mean, of course you are, but your entrance is automatic, or at least it should be. I'm terribly sorry for all of the... CJ raised his palms. Look, if you'll just tell me where to find my dad. This way, the man's face had reddened from his ears forward. He probably expected CJ to raise a fuss or make an official complaint. Fishing a dollar out of his front pocket, CJ stuffed it into the man's hand. Not the amount of tip he normally would receive, but it would have to do. It's all right, really. The worker slunk away and left CJ scanning the six faces around the table. His dad had his head buried in deep discussion with two men on his left. Leon sat beside him and Davis one seat down. On his right, Mr. Simons had his arms crossed and his lips pressed together. Next to him, the only woman in the group, Delphia Moncrief, matched his body language, only adding furrowed eyebrows. A large, balding man, Arthur Bench, completed the circle. The grimace he wore, along with his hand on his swollen belly, looked more like gas than disagreement. Ah, Carlton. Dad's toothy grin didn't reach his eyes. You decided to come. CJ smiled. After you cut the funding during your last meeting, I didn't have much of a to choice. The woman pointed a slinger, slender finger at Dad, and I didn't agree with that motion either, she said. With every seat occupied, C.J. pulled a chair over from a neighboring table. Dear old Dad hadn't truly expected him at all. Fancy that. So what is it you don't agree with, Miss Moncrief? Selling that beautiful old house where the Children's Center is. I'd rather see it become some sort of monument than another parking lot. Sell the center? A thousand tiny scorpions stung the back of his neck and began traveling down his spine. The center is kind of still using the building right now, Dad. Dad straightened. We can't expect you to come in mid-discussion and understand what all is going on. He tapped the table in front of Leon. Alton Leon cleared his voice. I move this discussion be postponed until we can discuss details more fully. I second Charles Davin. Puffed out, Davis puffed out his chest at the announcement. Well, I don't. I want to discuss this now. Miss Moncrief patted the surface of the shiny wooden table. 
CJ studied his father. The man's lips curled up a bit, and he acknowledged Miss Moncrief through half-closed eyes. He held the influence, and he knew it. Arthur Bench popped a couple of tums from a small bottle and leaned on his elbows. Let's keep moving. How had this group ever made any decisions at all? C.J. looked at his dad. Where are you planning to move the center if you end up selling the Haskell house? He didn't really care what Davis and Leon thought. Dad was the puppet master, again attempting to, to direct C.J.'s life for him. That's a discussion for another time, Dad pointed to Mr. Bench. Didn't you have a... C.J. interrupted. But I'm here now, and moving the center will make a direct a drastic transition for me and my team, not to mention the families we serve. If you move the building too far away, those who walk to their homes, almost 30% of our children won't be able to use our services at all. Dean Simon slapped, the palm, slapped his palms on the table. My thoughts exactly. Moving isn't necessary. We can add on where it is right now. Well, now that was a discussion C.J. could embrace. Absolutely. The side lot goes on virtually unused, except for the bus lane. We could move that further away and have plenty of room to add two more buildings, both as big as the first. Miss Moncrief smiled at him. You are so like your mother, C.J., so singular in your purpose for those children. Dad stiffened at the mention of Mom. Simons tapped the table. I love the idea. Dad's gaze no longer held the comfortable half-lids, piercing C.J. with a warning. You're getting your head of yourself, Carlton. The others chimed in in a rubble of discussion and overwhelmed the table. C.J. gave his dad a sidelong look. I'm not the one that's selling the building that's still being used. Dad's composure slipped. No one said we were selling. A red blotch grew above his proper business search. I second that motion. Mr. Simon slapped the table again. His dad pulled at his collar. That wasn't a motion. Miss Moncrief had a wide smile. All in favor? It overwhelmed her tiny mouse-like face, but she <laughs> raised her hand and called out, I, along with Simons and Bench. Opposed? Now just a minute. Dad's graying hair, normally smooth to perfection, perfection, had a few fraying edges. His eyebrows mimicked the look as he attempted to regain the control he'd lost. This isn't a real, none opposed. The eyes have it. Miss Moncrief let out a giggle, girlish despite her <laughs> 60 some odd years. Bench and Simons joined in her laughter. Davis and Leon looked confused. Dad took an audible breath. Very well. We won't be selling the center this year. <laughs> so I, I love that scene. It shows so much about the, the situation, the conflict between CJ and his dad. CJ, like Annalie, has parental issues. Um, his dislike yeah. of his background is really obvious, and it's a huge conflict in the story. But he has a real strong goal for the Children's After School Care Center, and that's obvious in this scene, too. So his goal is obvious. His conflict with his dad is obvious. His The things he hates, he dislikes being rich. He dislikes being associated associated with rich um for some reason and i don't make it clear right away his father is determined to hinder the operation of the center that's all clear too so in a nutshell mm -hmm. your main characters um not only are they introduced as this is this is sam and this is jane not only are we introducing them but we also have to reveal or at least hint at what the current goal is for the character, what the conflict is, the anticipated conflict is, um, 
in the first or second scenes, the main characters need to reveal their greatest fear. Now, when I say the first or second scenes, I don't mean the first or second or actual scenes. I mean the character's first or second scene. By the second time Anna Lee is, uh, by her second point of view character scene, her greatest fear is revealed. Um, the lie she believes is revealed. For Anna Lee, her lie is that she can't succeed on her own. And that's revealed in the very second scene, in the very next scene that she's, at the, that she's in charge of. Um, for there's a constant question that her mother always is asked, what were you thinking, Annalie? It haunts her every time she considers any type of, of action at all. Now I'll tell you, we actually had a bunch, a bunch more to talk about. Um, but Faye, we're getting close to being at the end. So um, share, the, <laughs> share the section about, about hope because her fears are really obvious also. Yeah, as I stated, Hope is, is a sick woman, and she's going, she's a young woman, and she's facing a, a disease, and she's very clearly afraid, but she's also, we find out that she's in the first scene, that she's destitute. She has caused something that has made her parents abandon her. Daniel's friendship is lost. And she's scared to death of what she's facing and that it's going to be a serious illness. She has no insurance. She has no way to overcome this, this illness. And as uh -huh. the story grows, Hope's fear turns differently. She begins to realize that the way that I face this is going to affect Daniel for an eternity. And her love for Daniel makes her grab a hold of her fears. And though she, she slips and slides a little bit, that's her her goal is not really to romance Danny, but to show Danny that someone loves him greater than she could love him. And yeah. that's how it, it turns out. Well, and you're right, you don't share that at the very beginning because to be honest, if you read if you if you get a full picture of everything that's gonna happen at the beginning of the story, then why mm -hmm. in the world would you want to read the whole book? My goodness. You've got yeah. to give the reader something, some reason to read. And so authors, as you are writing that first novel, or as you're writing the, the novel, your work in progress, as you're working on that, make sure that that first initial section, and like I said, it can be, it can be two scenes, it can be eight scenes. I've had a book before that that first section was eight scenes long. Um, it has to get into the hints of what's going on in the characters' minds. You have to give yeah. them a sense of what's going on, um, but you can't give them everything. You have to give a hint at what the conflict of what the problem is. What is the overlying, I, I used to teach when I was teaching um, middle school writing, I used to teach that the story has to have a problem at the beginning and that problem has to be solved at the end. Well, that is no different from novel writing. In novel writing, you have to have a problem at the beginning and that problem has to be solved at the end of the book and it may not be solved in the same way every time but it has to be there has to be some resolution to that situation at the end of the book um, 
or you don't have a complete story. And other things happen. There yes. are subplots. There are all kinds of issues. But that problem has to start at the beginning and has to go to the end. And so the hints of this problem are in this first initial section, this introduction section. We're going to go into the second section next month. Now, that's going to be on April, let's see, April 1st, 2nd, 3rd, April 3rd. That's right, because April Fool's Day is also on Easter. So as far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as April Fool's Day this year. We are celebrating Resurrection Day on April 1st. And Amen. we have April, so April 3rd, that Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central, is when we're going to go through the second section. And we'll also, to go through the section, second section, we also have to talk a little bit more about the first section. So we will be addressing this again. There are eight different sections. Um, like I said, the first one is introduction. I may be able to come up with some clever way of naming all of these, but right now the first one is an introduction section, and it introduces not only the characters, it also introduces the conflicts, it introduces the romance to an extent, or the need for a romance. It might just do that. It gives an initial incident that is the ignition to the problem. It's going to initiate the yes. problem. It's going to stir up the main character into action. Um, the initial incident in Frozen Notes when her husband came, or, well, when there was a double murder-suicide uh, and her husband left, had left without looking at these pages, that initiated her to action. For Hope, her sickness initiates her to action. For Anna Lee, one word changes her life, guilty, and it initiates her to action. And so the same thing in Counterpoint, that first sentence initiates an action. Although my main characters aren't involved in that first scene, there is the, the it, it stirs the antagonist into action, which is going to result in the whole plot coming out. So let's see. we got about three more minutes, Faye. I want to talk about Storms okay. and Serenity. Talk to me about it. All Happy right. release day. Yay. Tell me about oh, it. Oh, I am so excited. It's, this is the book that's an auth that authors dream of finding a publisher for. It's one of those ones that you know that you've taken on so much and you've worked on it and worked on it. And you've finally gotten to the point where a publisher knows that you can do it. Thank you, Margie. Um, like you said, it's vast in scope, and it's a saga. I love the tagline we came up, one smile island, one epic tale, because the story is so cool. epic in scope. It's a modern-day retelling of the aftermath of David's sin that he committed against Bathsheba. And we know how long the, the Lord held the sword over David's family and, and because right. of his indiscretion. So one small island called Serenity Key has two storms barreling toward it, and one has nothing to do with atmospheric pressure. Uh, Will the yeah. island survive one man's sin and all the secrets he keeps he kept to keep that hidden? And that's what well, the story's about. You, I'm so happy. I'm going to give you the short version really quick. David New has guarded his secrets for years, but when two brothers, John and Andy Ryan, arrive in town, he gets news that his daughter, he's never told anyone about, has disappeared, possibly the victim of a heinous crime. And the lives of many of the town residents begin to unravel in the gale-force consequences of David's past. He has nowhere else to turn. God is the only one who can calm the storms, but can David and the survive until he does? 
How can one man save the town he loves when he's the reason for the destruction? A tempest has been brewing for 30 years with only one island town in its path. Now, especially for you listeners, y'all can get it right now for 40% off. It is on um, Amazon.com, and it is only the um, only the Kindle version is on sale, and we're almost out of time. So we're going to be talking about this next month. You'll be back, right, Faye? I sure will. All right. We'll talk to you later, Faye. The rest of you, we wish, we look forward to seeing you again. We look forward to chatting with you again. But as for tonight, may God grant you his richest blessings in your life Bye-bye. and in your <laughs> writing. Bye. Bye. This has been Publishing Lane with your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Write Integrity Press. If you'd like to learn more about Margie and her publishing company, visit writeintegrity.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-I-N-T-E-G-R-I-T-Y dot com.